today, Tony Anscombe, Chief Security Evangelist of ESET, joins us to talk about the latest threats and malware, the imperfections of Apple security, and Russia-Ukraine cyber implications. All this and more on the Cyber Jack Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Excited to dive into some of your insights on malware and the current situation with Russia and the Ukraine. Before we get into that, can you share a bit about yourself and what you've been focused on in your role recently? Hi, Jack. So I'm Tony Anscombe, Chief Security Evangelist at ESET. We're a cybersecurity company. Uh, And this has been a a busy few years for us because cybersecurity has been super important over the pandemic and coming into this year you're seeing lots of drivers there as well uh, with the conflict in ukraine and increased requirements for companies to have cyber insurance so deployment of cyber security in there Uh, but of course malware doesn't stop it's a business and combating those threats is always at the top of our mind and spreading the word about some of those threats that conferences like Black Hat and DEF CON, etc., is always important to us. Of course. And the more awareness and data sharing we have in the cyber community, the better. So let's dive into it. Could you give us a little bit of an overview of what ESET researchers have seen in the last four months? And did ESET glean any insights into what was motivating those threat actors during those months? So I put things into kind of two buckets, Jack. One is uh, the monetization of malware, so a cybercrime that's committed for somebody to make money. And then in those last four to six months, we've seen cyber warfare in Ukraine. So we kind of see two splits now. Obviously, nation-state things happen on a a frequent basis anyway outside of uh, cyber warfare, but this is the first time we've seen it actually in action. So that's been a a very significant moment. But if I pull off the stats, uh, and if you and I, Jack, were in the same room and we looked at these stats, if you look at, for example, our latest threat reports, that's a T2 2022 ESET research threat report, what you'd see is on the the ranking tables of malware and threats, you'd look down it and go, well, that all seems to be good news because there are things in decline. So, for example, ransomware declined by 24%. There was a small decline in phishing attacks. And it might appear to be great news, but unfortunately, that's not the case. You know, a small decline in any malware category doesn't actually mean that the cyber risk, unfortunately, is is diminishing. Uh, And also the declines in there are very explainable. So, for example, there was a, at the start of the year, the ransomware uh, targeted different countries, ransomware targeted different countries. So, for example, the focus turned actually on to Russia with activists deploying ransomware into the Russian market. So you saw a spiked increase. So then as that stopped and ransomware criminals started to return to their monetization and their normal day-to-day business, uh, you see that decline and and the top countries starting to become the US and China and parts of Western Europe, as you'd expect. Uh, Same with phishing. We saw an increase in T1, so the first four months of the year, because Emotet, uh, the 
phishing uh, downloader campaign malware group that typically use phishing as their deployment mechanism started up and had a significant campaign at the end of the first four months and then in the second four months of the year it appeared that actually in august they took a holiday uh, because we pretty much saw no activity from them so these numbers kind of go up on a roller coaster ride uh, and are all very explainable but be under no illusion, cyber threats are out there and uh, are serious business. Well, those movements are very interesting. Definitely keep us informed as ESET continues to monitor the threat landscape. I wanted to shift gears a bit and talk about something else that ESET has recently discovered. People often perceive Apple's Mac devices as impenetrable. However, ESET discovered Cloud Mensis, a Mac OS backdoor. Can you share with us what ESET found and what that means for Apple security? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. The Mac environment, a lot of Mac users, I think, still have this perception that their device can't be penetrated by anything. And of course, unfortunately, as with any any device and any piece of software, any operating system, uh, there's always some way that somebody's going to find to abuse it, whether that's by stealing credentials, whether that's by a piece of malware, etc., or whatever. So we should never rest on our laurels and step back and turn and say, you know, I use this unusual device or I use this different device and I'm secure. But in the, uh, I think what you're referring to is is our discovery of Cloud Mensis. Uh, and it, this was previously an unknown uh, piece of Mac OS malware. What's particularly interesting about this is it's a backdoor that spies on users uh, on the compromised Mac. And we, when we talk about compromise, that means there's a piece of malware sitting on the Mac. Now, we don't know how specifically this piece of malware actually gets onto the device, but it's clear that it's uh, particularly about exfiltration of data so it's a spyware piece of malware and it's gathering information on the victim's mac by exfiltrating documents keystrokes it can screen capture and you know we've seen apple step up you know, and acknowledge spyware targeting its products and users uh, in ios with and in fact mac os with the previewing of lockdown mode which disables certain features to allow you to lock the operating system down further. So this is clearly an issue that's on uh, Apple's mind as well. This particular threat, though, used um, uh, cloud-based command and control servers. Uh, and what's, I think, particularly interesting from, from my side is it also got round, uh, and as a Mac user, you'll know this, Jack, if you try and add something, for example, that uses the microphone or screen capture or camera on a Mac, you typically get popped a box uh, that is from the transparency, consent, and control system that's built into Mac OS. Well, this particular piece of malware actually circumvents that messaging. Uh, so there's a, known there's a known vulnerability that was reported by a, a chap called Matt Shockley uh, back in 2020, and it, it takes advantage of that particular vulnerability, uh, and it allows the malware to rewrite the database that TCC uses to allow them to access you know, the microphone and the screen capture and the camera, etc., to deploy their spyware. So it's a particularly nasty piece of malware because, you know, it's it's destroying the consent system that's built into macOS. 
It's pretty apparent that the majority of Apple users have a false sense of security when it comes to their everyday devices. Can you talk a little bit about how nation state backed hacking groups are targeting Apple devices and specifically Mac OS? So we've seen campaigns from uh, the North Korean group uh, Lazarus. And, and when I say North Korean, it's attributed by other people, not us. We, we tend to attribute these types of attacks to a group and then specialized agencies, government agencies around the world will attribute them to state actors. Um, now, Lazarus is infamous to a certain degree for running spear phishing and phishing campaigns. And uh, earlier in the year, we saw uh, Coinbase job offers uh, being run through LinkedIn. And this was what I define as a fairly general campaign because it seemed to be uh, non-targeted uh, to a certain level. Uh, and they were offering, like I say, Coinbase job offers and people, yeah, there was documents attached and it was running through the professional network LinkedIn. Now, in that latest campaign that we've just published research on in the last uh, several weeks, this was very specific because it attacked a journalist in Belgium and an aerospace worker in the Netherlands, all with the point of data exfiltration. And this was again done on the job offer scenario where one of the spear phishing attacks was through LinkedIn mail and the other one was through regular email. Now, it's interesting. what's interesting about this is if you look at the Coinbase stuff, you look at the the stuff to an aerospace company, uh, and you look at a journalist, so, some of them might be explainable depending on what the journalist writes about or what particular projects an aerospace company is working on. But I think what it highlights to me is actually whatever company you are, you might become a target. Uh, and you know, this is attributed as a, a sponsored or nation state group. So when we see research appear in the media and we think that, hey, look, you know, that's not going to ever ever affect me. Why would uh, some nation state or nation sponsor, you know, nation state sponsored group come and attack my company? Well, you never know. And uh, yeah, these groups have high sophistication, very very high sophistication. They have lots of resources, lots of of money at hand uh, to pay for those resources and they can come after come after you in a much different way to what normal cyber criminals would do so we often talk don't we about phishing awareness and employee education etc uh, etc et and in fact october was cyber security awareness month and i looked back 10 years ago to 2012 and the top ca the campaign for Cybersecurity Awareness Month in 2012 included phishing. And guess what it includes in 2022? Phishing. Uh, it, this is an issue that clearly we're not getting to grips with as employees or, or as people, or not getting to grips with it as much. Uh, okay, the sophistication has changed. But in this instance, in this particular campaign from Lazarus Group shows, you know, we need to do better. We need to uh, be training our employees better, and we need greater awareness of, you know, if, it's, if you didn't instigate an email, then it's probably not real. That's a really good reminder for users as a basic first line of defense against some of these types of threats. 
I also know ESET has recently examined how Emotet malware is changing tactics in response to Microsoft tightening their office macro security. How quickly are these threat actors able to adapt and change course? So Emotet is an interesting one because uh, they typically, again, as I said in in, a, in the previous answer just a moment ago, you know, they're a group that run very sophisticated phishing and spear phishing campaigns. Uh, and typically, historically, they've used uh, VBA macros in Office, so a particular type of, of mac uh, macro attached to the Microsoft products. Uh, but Microsoft adapted and they defaulted the, uh, the macros off in the operating system recently. And now what you're seeing is uh, groups like Emotet switching quickly and adapting and changing course and using other methods. So using, for example, link files and other, other methods to attack uh, the user through Office in, in much the same way. Uh, and what this show, I think what this shows is that you know, whereas we think of a lot of cyber criminals being in a dark room with a hoodie and dark lights and maybe in the back of a garage, these are businesses, these are monetizing businesses. And when somebody comes along and takes your monetization mechanism away from you, you adapt your business. And it depends on how quickly you adapt your business on how successful your business remains operating. And unfortunately, cyber criminals are are very adapt to that. And if you think about that, you know, you often see things happen in the news. You'll see uh, a news story. Uh, in fact, uh, let's use the pandemic as a good example. Right at the start of the pandemic, you saw a lot of phishing emails using the COVID information or vaccine information or whatever it was. And it was quick. It was very quick. And you see that when the Olympics come along, they'll use a, the Olympics as a as a message and or whatever's prevalent in the news at the time. They have the ability to switch some of these campaigns incredibly quickly and, and change their tactics. Uh, and we shouldn't under, you know, we should not underestimate the, their ability to change quickly. Often, I would say quicker than a commercial company can. You know, typically in commercial companies, it takes us time, doesn't it, to to shift our focus slightly, get our marketing teams in in line, and etc., and get all that campaign material together. Cyber criminals don't seem to have that same problem. Yeah, it's really a cat and mouse game between cyber criminals and cybersecurity companies, especially right now. So diving back into some of ESET's research, you've seen a sharp decline in remote desktop protocol attacks, which lost steam seemingly due to the Russia-Ukraine war, along with the post-COVID return to office and overall generally improved security of corporate environments. Now, that's not to say that organizations and employees shouldn't be worried about RDP attacks. So what sorts of security measures should IT leaders be looking to implement? And what can employees do to help mitigate the risk of an RDP attack? Well, so firstly, as a cybersecurity person, Jack, I just need to say, please turn on two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication, whichever you want to call it. Um, that's both as a person, uh, a person, and that's a call to businesses. Um, and we recently actually ran uh, some survey with some small and medium enterprise businesses around the world in 14 different countries and what we found was um a lot of a lot of those organizations were still very willing to run rdp and i'll come back to the rdp piece in a minute but only only 50 percent of them had uh multi-factor authentication turned on 
This, as a personal thing and a business thing, is one of the biggest things you can switch on to protect your environment because it stops somebody doing the brute force attacks or credential theft and then logging on as, as you. Now, in this instance, you mentioned RDP. That's the remote desktop protocol uh, part of Windows. It allows you to remotely connect uh, your Windows environment in the office to wherever you are remotely and run run uh, you know, run all the applications that you'd normally run. And that was obviously very popular through COVID. And we saw a lot of companies go down this path very quickly, not necessarily with all the security uh, thoughts and configurations they should have done. That has improved over, over time, obviously. And of course, now we're seeing hybrid work in some of those companies are even switching parts of that RDP off. And to give you a feel for that, over uh, from the start of 2020 to the end of 21, so in that two, kind of two-year period, we saw an 894% increase in the attempted attacks against RDP. So that's a huge, huge number. Now, let me put a, a true number on that, on these attempted attacks. In T1 of this year, so when we talk about T1, that's the first four months of the year, we saw 123 billion attempted connections. So that's brute force connections against RDP systems. And that's only the ESET telemetry. So that's only what we see as a company. You know, if you then take all the other security companies out there in the world uh, and aggregate that number together, that's going to be one very, very big number. Now, the good news is, is in T2, we saw that decline down to 13 billion. And there's a number of reasons that could be behind that. One is uh, the war in Ukraine. If we look at the source of RDP, those brute force attacks, the, the source is predominantly Russia. That's the majority of where they come from. Um, We're seeing more companies switch off parts of their RDP or get to grips with their security two years on from the start of the pandemic and actually deploying some of the safety things that they should do. For example, putting RDP behind a VPN so that it's not publicly accessible, protecting it with multi-factor authentication, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But it could could be that actually, um, you know, the the companies are just are just now sorting it out um, yeah, and, and fixing these issues. It could simply be that, but I think it's a mix of all those all those three different things that are, are, are making that number go down, which is a good thing. Oh, and there was one last change in there. Microsoft added some brute force protection into the operating system. That was the other thing that was added in here as well. So it's good. It's it's it seems to be declining, but I, I hasten to add. T2 still saw 13 billion, uh, and that's, like I say, only our data. 13 billion is quite a lot of attempted attacks. Yes, it is. Anything more we can do as an industry to drop that number is effort well spent. So finally, we wanted to check in on the cyber implications of the Russia-Ukraine war. I know ESET has played a critical role protecting Ukraine during the Russian invasion, working directly with Ukraine's computer emergency response team, as well as working closely with CISA and industry partners to identify and defend against zero-day threats, wiper malware, and bad actors targeting the electrical grid. Can you provide a little bit of background on some of the recent significant threats you've discovered in the region and why we have not seen these types of attacks in other countries as was kind of expected at the start of this conflict. 
to start with, I'm going to step back to 2015 and 2016. You saw attacks in, against critical infrastructure, uh, called one called Black Energy, that took power grids down for about six hours in Ukraine in 2015. And then in 2016, we were very involved in uh, another attack that took part of the power grid down for about an hour. Uh, declined, it, it declined power to about 230,000 homes in Ukraine. So uh, pretty significant. And what was very interesting about this mal this particular piece of malware and cyber attack in 2016 was it it was in against industrial control systems now it, it, for the for somebody that doesn't understand what an industrial control system is it's kind of a black it's kind of the black box it runs software but it it's not something that you relate to in the same way it doesn't have you know a nice graphical user interface like windows or a mac or or anything like that yeah, it's a control panel uh, and these are very specialized pieces of equipment. You know, think about when you walk into a building, they cut these, some of these ICS systems kind of look like the fire protection panel that you see when you walk into to a building. So I think that's a visualization for, for, for the listener. Um, they run specific firmware, software on them, and to attack them, you have to understand the protocols that are in use, how these are deployed in certain environments, uh, and the types of software running on it. You have to have really sophisticated, in-depth knowledge of how these panels work and how you might be able to affect them. And that's what happened in 2016 that took the power grid down for an hour. Now, if we fast forward now to the conflict of, uh, of this year, yeah, we've seen a number of data wipers, and you know, I'm going to pull out a, a couple of them here. Hermetic wiper, uh, which was deployed the day before land, Russian land forces went into Ukraine, so it was clearly a timed attack, uh, and that I think was deployed around five o'clock in the afternoon before the ground invasion, uh, and that was against a number of different organisations. Uh, and you know, it's exactly what it says on the tin. It's a data. It's a data wiper that destroys the data on a machine. So whereas we are used to thinking about ransomware that encrypts and you can get it back or hopefully get it back, in this instance, it's pure sabotage. Uh, and then we saw Caddy Wiper uh, shortly after that. And then uh, at the start of April, we were in cooperation with Ukraine's CERT UA. So uh, the computer emergency response team, as you mentioned, uh, they were alerted that there may be an attack against uh, ele electrical the electrical grid. Uh, we got involved because we were the ones that did the original analysis of Industrial in 2016. And sure enough, we found a, ver a new variant of Industrial, which we've named Industrial 2. Uh, it's got some configuration changes, and it's clearly been uh, modified from its original version. Uh, but it was due to actually take effect, I think, on April the 8th. Now, because we were called in by CERT UA uh, in time, the attack didn't actually uh, become a reality. So I, it was thwarted before it actually started. Uh, but it had a timing in there. It had uh, a data wiper attached to it. So Caddy Wiper was clearly part of the same attack. So, and the reason you might link pieces of malware together is if you attack the electrical grid and then you destroy data on the machines around the control or, or, or control parts of the electrical grid one you may be destroying how 
you deployed the original malware, but also you're you're making it harder for somebody to recover. Um, and in those type of instances, yeah, it, you get you end up with power grid engineers not not understanding how to switch things back on, or potentially using manual overrides that could be very dangerous because some of the safety mechanisms may well have been turned off in those industrial control systems as well. So it's been a, a really interesting year. You know, we continue to uh, work with the different agencies. You mentioned CISA, um, you know, CERT UA, we, uh, and different agencies around the world in protecting Ukraine against uh, cyber attacks of this type. I will point out, you know, ESET is a Slovakian company. We border Ukraine and Ukraine, we are uh, probably roughly the largest provider of cybersecurity products in Ukraine. So it's a very particularly significant region for us. There it is. We'll keep a lookout for more threat intel from ESET across Russia, Ukraine, and the enterprise. To all of our listeners, we'll see you next time.